Well, Brian's gone. Guess what? It's me. <laughs> you just have to remind Brian, don't go off, to, off on vacation too often. We're continuing on this process that we have started back in January on the mind of Christ. The purpose that we are using the book of Mark is to help us understand what it means to have the mind of Christ. For Christians are called to be like Christ, letting their character form within us through the Holy Spirit. We're literally commanded to think and feel the way Jesus does. Philippians 2.5 tells us that to have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus. Yet so few Christians actually do. No wonder Christianity is struggling in America today. As we seek to live and minister in God's will in the, these turbulent 20 that Brian has used, we must apply it actively, reshaping our thoughts and feelings to match those of Jesus. No excuses, no ifs, no ands, no buts, but to explore and to understand and to have the mind of Christ for ourselves. For so we begin this year by exploring several emotions, attitudes, priorities, and practices of Jesus described in the Gospel of Mark. So the, the passage I have today is Mark 11, 15 through 19. It's a, it's a very interesting story because it is in the Tuesday of the Holy Week Jesus and his disciples have returned to Jerusalem. And they encounter the temple again. And as I was reading that, and I was thinking of all the animals that were there, all the noises and confusion and the smells, especially the smells, when you have that many animals in a confined space, it brought me back to a memory of mine. Back in Denver, uh, for 104 years, they, during the month of January, the coldest month that you could possibly do, they have a national stock show. We used to, as kids, used to love going. It's 10 days of rodeos and wandering the aisles with the pigs, the horses, the cows, the chickens, the bunnies, all sorts of stuff, and in their natural environment. So you can imagine the aroma indoors, with heat, with a lot of animals, and a lot of people. It gives you certain memories. And you remind yourself, um, as a kid, first thing you would do is go, oh, we, we're not going in the pig. Oh, man, that's really bad. But we used to go at least three or four times while they were there every year. It was one of the funnest times because sometimes it was, Minus six degrees outside, and it was a balmy 70 degrees indoors. And you went through the rabbit section quickly to get back outside in the cold. Um, it is one of those things. But if you've ever been in something like that, or an outside bazaar that has nothing but tr uh, traders and sellers of stuff, from spices to food, uh, different types of food, heavily spiced, animals for sale, all sorts of stuff. Same type of chaotic feeling you walk into. 
What's interesting, as they were going into uh, the temple grounds, this is what is recorded by Mark. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who were selling doves. And he began to teach, excuse me, at 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple ground. And he began to teach them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And then the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began to seek ways to put him to death, for they were afraid of him. Because all the crowds were astonished by his teaching. And whenever, whenever evening came, they would leave the city. Now what's interesting in this process, we go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. And the temple building, there was a passage that was written like this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, come from afar for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name and your great mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this house, the temple, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house I have built is called by your name. That's the purpose of the temple. What's interesting, if you ever study the temple, it's very elaborate. There's places for everybody. We are reminded that as we look in that passage, that they entered into the temple. We have the Holy of Holies. We have the holy place, the altar, the inside that middle section. We have the courtyard for the men of Israel, and we have the courtyard for the women. But around that entire corridor is the court of the Gentiles. That's where we, who were believers in Yahweh, would come to worship. There was only one place that you could worship, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. So many would come from afar. They would plan their events to come to a chance to come and praise God in his temple. But we realize that there is some things that are amiss. Now, this particular passage in Mark is one of four. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all talk about this particular event at this particular time in the week of Passover. John, chapter 2, talks about this event that happened in the first part of his, Jesus' ministry. If you remember in John chapter 2, he ends, on, ends up going into the courtyard and he draw, makes a whip out of cords and threatens everybody to leave overturning the money changers again. So this is not something he just did once. He did it twice in his ministry for specific reasons especially as we go into the Passover. 
Now, it's Tuesday. We know what, Jesus knows what's coming come Friday. He knows what Thursday night would be like. But he's there again teaching in the courtyard of the Gentiles where so many people are. Because a Gentile could never go any closer than that little fence around the Holy of Holies and the altar. If he did, he would be subject to death. So, here we are. Could you imagine yourself as a Gentile going to this place to worship God and you're in the midst of noisy animals, sellers of stuff, um, and what's interesting, as you go and offer up a sacrifice, you had to buy an animal. Most of the, the cheapest you could get was a dove. But you would give them money to change into temple money that you then could buy your animal. Unfortunately, uh, they cheated you every single time. Not because you're a Gentile, just because they could. The Israelites were cheated in that courtyard. And so they brought in animals. They brought in oxen. They brought in doves. And they brought in lambs and sheep for the sacrifice. As Jesus came in, he purged that court of the Gentile, at least for one day, from the corruption that was going on by the merchants. It was also known by Josephus' writings, the Bazaar of Ananias, named after the greedy high priest Ananias who held tremendous power and influence behind the scene. His, his son-in-law, Chrysus, was the current high priest. Between those two, they could buy and sell anybody. If you wanted to sell your merchandise in there, you had to go there. And they would exact a price out of you just for that franchise, just that opportunity to sell. Whoever sold or exchanged money had to pay them the right to, to do that. And those merchants saw you coming from a distance and said, all right, we're going to make monthly payment uh, out of this one individual. So it's like going in and you're going to buy a dove that sells for a dollar. It takes you $10 to buy that $1 note to buy that one dove. So you can imagine what an oxen was or a lamb. It was hugely corrupt. They abused their position to be rich. They were rich off the poor, the sick who came to get a healing, the lame, people who were coming to praise God. They abused them just like Ananias and Caiaphas abused them. The temple grounds were turned into a commerce center. Things were bought and sold. Money was exchanged for temple coins to make that offering. It was necessary for the money changers to be there to change all the coins into Jewish coins. But they never did it fairly. With that and all the animals and all the yelling and screaming and the hawking of your services to everybody, it was chaotic. 
The result was just unbelievable. It greatly affected the worship of God for anyone coming into that. If you were a Jewish individual and you had to walk through that courtyard to get into where the men of Israel could stand and see the altar of the Lord to worship, you had to work your way through that. Imagine enthusiastic haggering that was undoubtedly accomplishing this activity of changing money. And the oriental setting was completely disturbing to the general devotion. And when this commotion was augmented by the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep and goats, the cooing of pigeons and doves, the resulting hubbub must have made the devotion exercises most difficult for the sincere worshiper. At that rate, Jesus found it necessary to clear them out and thus regulate them to a suitable distance from the palace of sacrifice and prayer. How would we feel if we had to wade through all that just to get inside the church to worship? We, as we look at that passage, we see there were actions that Jesus took. First and foremost, he drove out those merchants and buyers from the area. He threatened them and they left. He had a holy righteousness, a wrath that he was demonstrating in a small form in that moment of time. I hate to see when he gets really angry. He overturned those that were selling doves and pulled out their seats. He overturned the money changers and scattered the coins on the ground. And it was a mad scramble for everybody going for the coins. Not only the merchants, but everybody else that were around them. They could go, free money. So you can imagine as he did that, how everybody jumped into the middle of that. He stopped the people from using the temple grounds as a cut through to save time from their going around the temple grounds with armful of goods. If you notice how large it is, it was huge. And if you were at the one end and you said, hey, I could cut 20, 30 minutes off, I'll just walk through the, the common area, the court of the Gentiles, with all my merchandise to get on the other side. That saves me time. So it could have been anything. It could have been a pack animal of stuff coming with you walking through the temple, around the temple building and through the courtyard and back out to the other side. Jesus made a point to stop them from doing that. He taught this place was a place of prayer and worship of God, not a den of thieves. The court of Gentiles was there for those who follow God but was not Jewish by birth and would come to worship and offer sacrifice. It was the only place that they could come to worship. And you know, the Lord hates perverted worship, especially when it's based upon greed. He calls this group and individuals a den of a robber den. Jeremiah 11, or 7, verse 11 says, as this house, which is called by my name, becomes the den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. 
He has done this before. Two years before, as he started his public ministry, he drove them out for the moment. But like the sea, it went out and it came back in with a force. So there are some results that, that by these actions of Jesus, we see that the chief priests started to plan to kill Jesus because it affected his bottom line. His father-in-law, who was buying him, Ananias, said it damaged his prestige and power. There were others that came because they needed a healing, and Jesus healed them and was criticized by everybody around that they came to the courtyard of the Gentiles to be healed because they knew that God cared for them and loved them and would heal them. In Matthew, the passage, the children were singing the praises to Jesus, which caused the chief priests, the scribes, and other leading men to become indignant of that action. They, it was messing up their bottom line. It was something that destroyed the business sense of their life. We also see that Jesus judged the Sadducee, the high priestly families who were not attuned to the character of the, of the Father, whose house it was called. So the question is, well, what does that mean to us? We don't have that. Correct. We don't have a temple where only place that God lives in. In this application, have that mind of Christ. John MacArthur writes this in his commentating series on Book of Mark. True worship of God does not allow acts like these that was displayed by many in the courtyard. True repentance and saving knowledge of God dominates Jesus' purpose and ultimately nothing else could be addressed or corrected until this issue was made right. That's why he persecuted and pushed everybody out that was selling things, that was changing money, that was creating not a devotional moment, but a selling moment. The destruction of the corrupted religious center on the temple began that that Tuesday. It would accelerate dramatically onto Friday when God tore the veil separating the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place from top to bottom, complete, and the complete destruction of the temple came in four decades when Rome came and destroyed and broke apart that temple. But God had left that by then. God had left on Friday, on Thursday night when Jesus died on the cross and the veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil was so heavy and thick you could not separate it. You could not use our, your own strength or armies of oxen to separate it. But God did in that moment that Jesus, his son, our Savior, went to the cross and died for our sins. And what became out of that was no longer do we go to a building to worship. For God has come to us. He has come to our heart. We have a new, better way. 
It's not a temple made with stones and hands, but one made of human heart. We will be that new temple as God reigns in our lives. As believers, you know that. It doesn't matter where you are. You worship God at that moment. Here in this building, out in the yard, in the mountains, even in the swamp, on those vacations where you think you're going on a nice sunny trip and you end up on a swamp. And you go, ah, but you still can worship God there. This mindset that we're called to have as, for, as followers of Christ is pure worship and prayer to God. True worship and prayer to God. Holy worship and prayers to God. There's no longer a physical house that God is contained in. But he lives in us. The new temple. For the disciples, a realization will be happening to them in a few days. God will not remain in the Holy of Holies anymore. But he will be living in their heart. For disciples that were familiar with familiar experiences of his presence were about to be changed dramatically. For them, no longer physically there to be in his presence. They were go, be going from having Christ present all the time to not having him present at all. They would become like believers of the coming generations who depended solely upon prayer to access God's power and provisions for their needs. The disciples would become totally dependent on, on whom they could not see. John 20, 29, 1 Peter 1, 8 are two passages that reminded us of that. What would be a momentous adoration of their life? They need to know that their Lord Jesus would sustain them through the mean of prayer. That's why prayer is so important. That's why we call everyone to constantly be in an attitude of prayer wherever you go. That's why we have prayer in the service and spontaneous prayer. That's why we have Sunday night prayer. That's why we have prayer before we eat dinner on Wednesday night and Sunday, Saturday night. That's why when we come, we gather together in ones and twosies and multiple groups and pray because that's our only way of knowing Christ who lives in our hearts and reminds us that we are loved for and cared for. So the question is, how are you doing? How is your prayer life? Is it what it should be? Or have you allowed it to be corrupted and junked up with all the things of life? How often do you pray? Do you only pray for one moment here and one moment there? A couple weeks ago in our prayer time, Kingdom Prayer, Sunday night, Rebecca Radcliffe was with us. And she laid out some of the prayer concerns that she had working with pioneers. And so as we were praying, she mentioned one thing that they, the entire organization is doing at the campus on, in Orlando was set their alarm clock on their phone at 10.02. And you might ask, 10.02? What's that for? Luke chapter 10, verse 2 says, The harvest is plenty, their workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. 
And so I said, you know, that's a great way to remind myself to continually pray. So every time at 10.02 in Sunday school, and that Sunday school class that I was teaching a couple weeks ago, realized that the phone was ringing in my pocket, and that was what it was. 10.02 at night, and I'm sitting there, and I hear my phone ring, and I'm thinking, who's that at 10 o'clock calling me? Then I'm reminded that it's a reminder to pray. It may be only a short prayer, but it helps me to remind myself God accomplishes the much through prayer. So the question is, how are you doing? Have you turned your life over to Jesus? Have you confessed your sins before him? Have you accepted him as your personal Lord? Have you accepted the forgiveness of your sin and commit to him and follow him from that moment on? Today's Lord's Supper, we're going to be celebrating in a few moments. It's an opportunity. It is purposely done to remind us of what has been given to us. Before, people had to go to Israel to walk into the temple where God was contained. Today, he is contained in our heart. He's here among us. He hears us. He sees us. He works through us. He hears our cries, our pleas, our needs, our laughter. He hears everything, and he acts according to his perfect will in our lives. We will continue to remember him because this is the Lord's Supper and a remembrance of what he has done for us. But he gave his life for us on the cross on that faithful day and the agony on the cross was fulfillment of our need for our sins to be forgiven. We continue to remember him as, he, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper until the day he comes. So we do it all the time. Not as many, some people do it every day, others do it once a month, some do it more infrequent. But every time we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper until he comes, reminds us that he no longer is in the holy, holy in the temple. He's with us 